afternoon and welcome to the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global Dialogue webinar series. I'm your host, Patrick Ryan. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Rachel Bronson, President and CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists at the University of Chicago about the movie Oppenheimer and what we can take away in understanding the implications of technologies that despite some positive applications could have catastrophic consequences, even posing existential threats to humanity. But on a drier note, first, let me tell you about the World Affairs Council of Tennessee. Uh, we're a nonpartisan nonprofit educational association based in Nashville, Tennessee at Belmont University. And we bring programs and resources to the community uh, and work with uh, high school students and college students to inspire and inform them on the challenges uh, they will face in an increasingly complex uh, global landscape. Uh, now, to do a deep dive into the meaning of the Oppenheimer story, there is no better expert on the topic than Rachel Bronson, the keeper of the doomsday clock. At the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Dr. Bronson oversees the publishing programs, management of the doomsday clock, and a growing set of activities around nuclear risk, climate change, and disruptive technologies. Before joining the Bulletin, she served as the Vice President of Studies at the Chicago Council of Global Affairs. She also taught global energy as an adjunct professor at the Kellogg School of Management. Prior to moving to Chicago, Dr. Bronson served as Senior Fellow and Director of Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. She is author of Thicker Than Oil, America's Uneasy Partnership with Saudi Arabia. I encourage you to take a look at her biography on the website, thebulletin.org, to see more of our impressive uh, professional achievements. Thank you, Dr. Bronson, for taking time from your busy schedule to talk to us today about Oppenheimer. Thank you so much, Pat. It's really a pleasure to be here with you in particular and with um, all those who are listening. Let's uh, let's start with the, the movie uh, itself. We're going to uh, talk uh, about uh, the, the current environment, but uh, we, we really want to drill down to, to begin with here on on the movie because it, it has turned out to be uh, quite the moment in in Hollywood's engagement with uh, important topics like uh, nuclear proliferation and, and uh, the technologies that uh, could pose uh, threats. Uh, it's adapted from the book, American Prometheus, a Pulitzer Prize winning book, a uh, story of J. Robert, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the theoretical physicist, director of the Los Alamos laboratory during the development of the atomic bomb and uh, subject of uh, the Christopher Nolan uh, blockbuster movie. I've I had, a chance to see it in uh, uh, IMAX uh, 70 millimeter. Uh, had to wait until 11.30 PM for the local Nashville IMAX uh, showing uh, the first uh, weekend. Uh, terrific movie, um, uh, really came away uh, impressed with uh, the storytelling. Uh, I've, I've read some comments that uh, there were a couple of Hollywoodizations of, of the story, but uh, uh, I think it's uh, captured the imagination of a lot of Americans uh, about the story and uh, and the consequences. So I'll I'll hand it off to you for your your opening remarks about uh, the movie and about what it uh, means to our current conversations about nuclear proliferation and, and other technologies that uh, that pose threats. Well, thank you, Pat. There's there's really a lot to talk about, and I look forward to kind of the discussion about it. Um, it was a terrific film. It is a terrific film. I highly recommend everyone go out to see it. Um, my experience, I've seen it twice now, and my experience, like so many, is a three-hour film is pretty daunting. Um, but this film, you sit down and 
three hours later, it's over and you kind of walk out and it's really immersive. You're really involved in kind of thinking through the, the with Oppenheimer, kind of the, the challenges at the moment, you know, that he was working in and World War II and the need for, for a bomb and who was participating. It's really, truly fascinating. There's so many different um, directions we could go in this discussion. Um, I think there, first of all, I think one of a question we that I asked, well, let me just actually step back and say, I am getting a lot of questions about the movie because Oppenheimer was one of the founders of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. He was the first chair of our board of sponsors, which were illustrious scientists um, around the United States and world. And many of the figures you see in the movie were part of our founders and our founders list. So Edward Teller and I.I. Robbie and Hans Bethe and all the kind of great um, scientists of the day, along with Albert Einstein, who was, you know, as we saw in the movie, kind of really at, at the end of, of his career and, and life, but still was an advocate for the bulletin and actually wrote some of our first fundraising um, uh, materials. Um, so I, we've been thinking about this for, for quite some time for the past year or so, knowing this movie was coming out. And, and I really do recommend uh, that if folks are interested, they take a look um, at the Bulletin's website. We, have, uh, we publish every other month a magazine, and we have one devoted to Oppenheimer, and it, our publisher made it free. So it's free to the public and just phenomenal content. So if you wanna go down the ra rabbit hole after seeing the film, um, that's one rabbit hole that you can go down. There's a lot of material there. Um, so a number of different directions uh, we could go in, but I think the first reason that this movie is having such resonance is because of how fraught the nuclear landscape is today. And it gives us a way to talk about these really complicated issues over the dinner table and in elevators with our friends in ways that quite frankly could feel kind of weird without the movie, right? It's hard to say, how are we doing on nuclear security or are you worried about nuclear weapons? It, that, you know, raising that in, this, in any context can seem a little intense and it is, but this movie is allowing us to have these conversations and start thinking about um, nuclear weapons again in a way that I think in, in our ether, it, it, we have the sense that it's more present than maybe we're aware or more present than we're making it known. And so, you know, we see huge people, uh, uh, huge audiences among young people. People ask, you know, are young people concerned? We see a huge young audience who've grown up with threats from North Korea um, fights over the Iran nuclear deal um, during um, President Trump's administration, uh, a kind of a casualness around whose button is bigger than the others and trips to North Korea. And of course, we're now living through and within the Russian invasion of Ukraine that for the first time, a leader of a major nuclear state is threatening uh, nuclear uh, use. And all of this kind of is put up on our screens and, and in front of us regularly in a way that seemed impossible a decade or two ago, that we would be talking about not only a conventional land war in Europe, 
but a Russian invasion and the threats of nuclear weapons. And whether it's the threat of nuclear weapons or using Zaporizhia and nuclear power plants as, as landlines, if you will. So it's hitting at this moment when I think many people are feeling that things are not going in the right direction around nuclear weapons. And we see Oppenheimer struggling with how do we manage the situation? The scientists understood back in the mid 40s that there was likely to be an arms race and there weren't guardrails and, and ha having to figure out what a, a governance system could look like. And I think very much we are in that moment now. So that's one area. And I don't know if you wanna dive deeper into that or we can talk about some other areas. So let me just stop and ask you, should we stop there or, or do you wanna go um, into some other areas that are, I think this movie surfaces for us. Well, I, I think uh, we'll, we'll get uh, into, um, you know, the, uh, the related uh, conversation about the technology and, and uh, global governance of, of technologies and, and so forth. But uh, tell us what, you know, you, you're, you're an expert in the field and, and you saw the movie. Uh, what jumped out at, at you as uh, key lessons in the conversation? You know, there was the, uh, I think there was only one scientist, uh, you know, they were pursuing the bomb because we thought Germany was going to get the bomb. Uh, one scientist uh, left the project after Germany uh, threw in the towel in, in World War II, uh, and the others uh, persisted, uh, continued uh, to work to uh, complete the, the project. Um, there's uh, the, the conversation, uh, Oppenheimer was enthusiastic about uh, getting the bomb. He uh, uh, he uh, cooperated and, and worked with uh, uh, military planners on the, how to uh, employ the bomb. But then uh, there's the, the quote, he's become the destroyer of worlds. Uh, uh, so he was clearly conflicted. And then as it turns out, uh, he was against the development of the hydrogen bomb. He was pushing for uh, international controls. So uh, as as uh, we, we screen the movie in our, our minds here, Walk us through a little bit of your reaction to how it played out. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I think as, as I was sitting there uh, watching the movie, the history of um, who these people were, um, were is, is really important to what we're understanding. Many of these scientists um, in this Manhattan Project are, had, are refugees from Europe. They had fled. They were either Jewish or they were married to someone who was Jewish in the case of uh, Enrico Fermi, which is why he leaves Italy and finds his way eventually to Chicago to split the atom. Um, they were being um, pursued for their, their science, for their expertise, um, as well as their identity. Um, and so they were very much, um, this was very personal for many of them. And so, and, and of course, the others who weren't directly connected had siblings overseas fighting, right? So the existential nature of the war um, that they were Im embedded in was very, very present. And especially in the European theater of operations, but as they moved to Japan as well, um, a very, very deadly catastrophic war with, with casualties, the numbers of which we can barely comp comprehend. And I think that actually becomes important to this one because we know now what nuclear weapons can do and how big 
they are and, and you know they can end life on Earth as we know it. But these were being built at a time where you have the bombing of Dresden with tens of thousands of people um, dying at the hands of repeated uh, bombs. And the Battle of Tokyo, the firebombing of Tokyo, which had happened before the bombs were dropped, uh, just a few months before, but a few months before, had casualties that um, exceeded the casualties of these nuclear weapons. So the scale of the destruction and the casualty of what World War II was like, I think that context, I think that context becomes very, very important um, to, uh, to what's going on. So I'm sorry, I think we're having some sort of technical difficulties on my side. Um, and I'm- You're fine, we can see you and hear you uh, very well, Rachel, okay. thanks. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so, uh, so um, I think that needs to absolutely shape um, how we understand the, the physicists and the scientists. So when they're, so and you, what, you, what you hear, and it's just a line that goes very quickly, um, but they're sitting in Washington and a, uh, I think it was the secretary of state at the time, but it may have been an assistant secretary as they're beginning to chart out the, um, the targeting, he says, you know, I worry for an America where tens of thousands of deaths causes no protests in the streets. And then those sitting listening say to him, well, Pearl Harbor and we'll do that. And so it's just important that that was just one line, but I thought the, the, the destruction and the, the, the death that's around them, but that doesn't, we don't fully feel that from watching the movie and that was driving um, the scientists. So uh, that was one thing that um, very much kind of was on my mind as we kind of rethink about what we should or shouldn't have done um, back in the day. Um, I think uh, the other thing that was on my mind was, and this happens very, very quickly in the movie and it's really hard. The one, one little thing I would have loved for him to put dates for Christopher Nolan to put dates and places as he's going back. And, you know, there's a moment when we're in Chicago and then we're back in Los Alamos. And then I think we're in California, probably at Berkeley at some point, and then we're back. And the importance of that is the Manhattan Project. We, we, we tend to kind of think about it as Los Alamos, right? But Los Alamos is just the tip of the spear of what the Manhattan Project really was. In fact, the heads of the Manhattan Project aren't Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer's the director of Los Alamos. But the heads of it were uh, Arthur Compton in Chicago and Ernst Lawrence in Berkeley. And they were overseeing a national effort to, uh, to build these bombs and, and create the science behind it. And so it was really important work is still going on in Chicago under Fermi. Oak Ridge Laboratories right in your home state of Tennessee. You have Hanford in Washington. And in each place, there's a different focus on how to build this. And every innovation that they're coming up with is mind-boggling advancements. All of them could have won scientific awards. And in, in the movie, right, it's just like they're dropping marbles into a fishbowl and measuring um, visionable material. But but really, this is a national effort uh, of, around these scientists to create the next innovation. Well, we, uh, 
when you talk about marvels and fishable material, you mentioned Iran earlier, there's um, you know, current world uh, questions about how easy it is to build a bomb. And if it was, uh, if it was feasible so many decades ago, we can only imagine the, uh, the feasibility among countries that, that have some level of technological expertise and, and the ability to uh, produce fissionable material. But let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, as, as we continue to uh, dive into the movie, and you're right, Nolan uh, uh, does have uh, a tendency, he's a nonlinear uh, uh, director, he, he uh, jumps around and, and you're not sure if you're in 1938 or 1953, and, but uh, I, I think it was a well-crafted film and, and uh, uh, the intersection of, of the storylines, uh, I think uh, worked out very well. Um, we're gonna talk about global governance after we talk about some of the other uh, technologies that, that pose a threat to us. But why, why do you think that uh, the movie, uh, apart from uh, the simultaneous release with the, the Barbie weekend, uh, why, why does uh, Oppenheimer strike such um, a chord with the American public uh, in this this time and, and age? And, and why is it that uh, we've come so long before this story was told and received so well? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about kind of the, the current nuclear environment in which we're operating. So, you know, I, I, I characterize it as the new nuclear landscape, or this isn't your father's <laughs> nuclear landscape, right? This is, we are in a, so we're in an era right now where every nuclear power is investing in their nuclear weapons. So the U.S. is embarking on a $1.8 trillion, probably about that much if there are no overruns, but about a $1.8 trillion investment in um, modernizing their nuclear arsenal well beyond what we need, um, I would argue, uh, to keep what we have safe. These are really kind of investing in new technologies. The Russians have just gone through a major uh, refresh of their nuclear arsenals. The Chinese are investing in ways that we haven't seen in the past. And 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 so on and so on. The, the Pakistanis continue to have a very fast building nuclear arsenal. All of them, we, we talked about North Korea. So all of um, the major states are investing in them. And they're investing in them in ways that seem to make be making them more usable. That as we talk about debates over tactical nuclear weapons or, or um, low yield nuclear weapons, you know, and if they can be used, there's just a new environment. We're, we're, we're kind of weaving a space where for a while these weapons were viewed as, as by and large as, as mostly for deterrence. And now like in our postures, if you look at our military postures and statements, certainly the Russians and even the US, they seem to hint on um, being more useful. We're also shredding our arms control uh, architecture. So we went through a period um, really from 1970 to about 2010 when we were building up our, our arms control architecture and really reduce, ultimately reducing the number that we have. And now there's very few limitations on what nuclear states can have, in part because the, the agreements have become dated. They weren't working, but we kind of stepped away from them without layering on new ones. And so in many ways, it's very similar to the moment that Oppenheimer and his colleagues are operating, right? Because there was no 
arms control architecture. They're trying to figure out how to build one in part that becomes many of their life work. Um, they're trying to figure out how to reduce the need. Oppenheimer believes, you hear in the movie, that maybe this weapon will end war as we know it. And there's an argument that for a number of years that may have held. Um, so there's a lot that's resonant. The difference is, is we know what happened. We know that he, that we haven't, we're not seeming to learn from that experience. But I think there's a sense of, of, a, of, of an underlying sense of camaraderie, like, oh, we know what this feels like when the guardrails aren't there, where investments are being made, where maybe it's going beyond the scientists. So I think there's that aspect that is really resonating, but not only that aspect. The other part of the movie that, and I think you can extrapolate from, is scientific advancement is always dual use. There are always huge benefits that can come from scientific advancement, but also real risks. And if you extrapolate from that, that's what the scientists are. They're really taken by their, um, they're taken by their innovations, but they come to the part where it's like, well, just because we can do it, should we, right? And so that's the, that's the debate over the hydrogen bomb where Oppenheimer is very much against the hydrogen bomb. He doesn't think it's a good use of resources. He thinks that atomic bombs are dangerous enough. You don't need something that big, even if the Soviets have it. Um, and that our, our focus can be on other uses of nuclear power, which go on to help in, you know, with radiation treatments for cancer empowering um, uh, spaceships to Jupiter and things like that. But, trying to figure out like how to govern this and also where are the limits. And I think today we're very much in conversations about that, about technology. Right now, things don't feel like they're going in a great direction. We just talked about nuclear, but we saw in, um, you know, with the kind of de debates over um, pathogens in COVID and regardless of whether you think COVID was a lab leak or naturally occurring, what we've learned is that technology is advanced enough in pathogen research that you could have a very significant lab leak that could lead to pandemics like COVID or worse. And we don't have a sense that those are being governed very well. You can look at artificial intelligence and literally we're having a battle right now about is AI an existential threat or not? And you have Jeffrey Hinton stepping down, like the, the literally the father of AI, just like Oppenheimer was the father of the atom bomb, the, the father of AI, stepping down because he doesn't think this is being managed very well. And we're being referred to in the New York Times as having his Oppenheimer moment. So there's science is moving ahead very quickly. We know it's going to bring huge benefits, right? The, the reason, like, AI in so many ways is helpful to us, but we don't have the ability right now. We can't see a vision to how do you govern these new technologies that we're creating? The same kinds of questions the Manhattan Project scientists were asking. You see Jeffrey Hinton and Sam Altman asking about AI and fights within the AI community of how dangerous is it? And you hear Hinton and others calling for regulation just like the way the scientists were calling for the Manhattan Project. So I think the whether it's on the topic of nuclear issues or the advancement of technology, I think it really resonates with this, this complicated environment that they found themselves in then and we find themselves in now. Now here's like, I think also an optimistic point of this is 
as we turn back and look back at the Manhattan Project and we talked about how encompassing it was nationwide, when the United States puts its mind to something, it can truly do great things. And I think we're hearkening back to a time where there seemed to be a greater uh, sense of shared mission where we could undertake these national efforts and produce great things. And I think this, this film is providing a vehicle for some of us to kind of begin again, continue to think about like, how could we make that possible again? And what would that look like? So I really do think it's tapping into a zeitgeist that, you know, and, and in, a, in a way that Christopher Nolan, when he started this project, couldn't have even imagined. But it's why, I, you know, I kind of argue in the op-ed, it's the right movie at the right time on the right topic. Well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the the uh, the question of just because you can do something, should you do something, and, and the question about building a hydrogen bomb. But there's also the uh, incentive for uh, people developing technology that if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it, which gets back to the glo global governance uh, thing. And, and I'll have a question on that uh, in just a second. But first, I, I want to remind everyone that we're talking with Dr. Rachel Bronson. She's the president and CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, you can uh, find out more about the Bulletin at thebulletin.org. I encourage you to take a look there and uh, check out the Doomsday Clock. And and Rachel, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Doomsday Clock. I, I understand we're 90 seconds to midnight and uh, uh, I take it you you own the title of the Keeper of the Doomsday Clock, is, is that? Uh, oh. <laughs> how, how is that received? My Science and Security Board. <laughs> Um, you know, we, uh, we, we moved away from nuclear a little bit to talk about AI and, and uh, pandemics, but let's uh, uh, see if we can uh, dot a couple I's and T's on, on the nuclear question. When it comes to global governance, there really uh, have been some successes in, in governing nuclear weapons, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has been effective in deterring some countries because of the, uh, the downsides. Um, we've had uh, bilateral treaties with uh, the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation, although the New START Treaty is now uh, no longer being observed by either party. So uh, let's, let's just look at the Cold War and, and uh, the atomic age. And uh, how would you, would you uh, uh, you're a professor, you've taught classes, what's your grade for global governance in, uh, in controlling nuclear weapons, proliferation, and uh, the threat uh, that we face? Yeah, so right now we're at a pretty dismal time um, in terms of global governance of, of nuclear weapons. And, um, and I think it's important if it also like just leaning on the movie a little bit and, and just to go back to that and I'll come back because I think it speaks directly to your question, which is towards the end of the movie, we see a number of cases where basically Oppenheimer is first telling his colleagues that just because we created it doesn't mean we get to control it. Like we have to leave that to the political actors. But then, right, then once that happens, he, he asks Groves, can I come to DC with you? And Groves said like, for what? And then he does try to get in to see Truman to talk with him about negotiating, you know, trying to figure out how to manage this escalation, which he and his fellow scientists, they were prescient. They anticipated a very expensive global arms race. And I think what's important on this is it, some people I know who I've spoken to came out very um, deflated about that. Like no one listens to the scientists. 
But what was what was really interesting is that um, Oppenheimer and his colleagues don't just take no and go away. They actually stay at this effort to try to think about how to create governance structures of, of this technology that seems so impossible to govern. And their ideas at the time are about internationalizing the science, which continues to be part of a conversation, certainly around the Iran deal that we can get back to. But um, they have those, they, they, they are trying to build track two, what we call track two conversations or like meetings between scientists in Russia and the US and we have Pugwash, you know, is evolving, but they stay very active in this and ultimately create institutions like the Bulletin and others where for the next 15, 20 years, I mean, up to the present, but at the time, the next 15, 20 years, there's very um, raucous debates about what's the best way to keep us safe. Is it arms control or is it, um, abolition, right? Do we have to get rid of all nuclear weapons? Or if, if, they're, if we have about as much as they do, can, is that keeps us in sort of a, a posture of mutually assured destruction? And, and what would arms control, what would be the most stable um, ways to maintain uh, uh, um, kind of strategic parity? So these kinds of issues are debated and Many of the conversations around technology and strategy emerge in the 70s, as, as you're talking about, in arms control agreements that really do control, as you mentioned, you know, the proliferation around the NPT, uses around nuclear power, important, about, uh, important um, uh, agreements around testing, above ground testing, below ground testing, no testing important um, agreements about reducing numbers, important, uh, uh, important developments around removing certain weapons that were particularly provocative. All of that comes out of this thinking. So one of the things that I take away from it is like, these things take time. When we look and the problem is, right, these weapons are so dangerous. We have to have some urgency around it because we can't, we don't want to wait another 20, 25 years until we're able to start responding. But it, to me, it's inspiring that they face such daunting challenges and they stayed at it and they created institutions that bring others in it. So bringing that up to the present, you are asking the question, you know, what's my grade? We have, I mean, I, 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 is it a failing grade? We're all here to talk about it, but the, the doomsday clock has steadily moved closer to midnight. And I know one of uh, there's at least one question on that, so we can kind of tackle that head on. But the doomsday clock is, has been moving pretty steadily towards midnight, with for, for mostly because of the lack of governance structure, that there's nothing that is really bounding the U.S. and the Russians, the two countries that control 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. There is very little in terms of exchanges and conversations and efforts to reduce the threat. And I think for many of us looking at it, it, the time does not feel right for it, which is we cannot think, find ways to actually engage with each other productively on these issues. And now we also have the Chinese um, who are investing very heavily, who seem very uninterested in any sort of negotiation. So this is not to say it's easy, but it's too dangerous for us to throw our hands up and say, we'll never be able to figure this out. Precedent shows we will be able to figure out if we stay with it. 
and the dangers of these technologies insist that we stay focused on it because it's too dangerous for us to throw our hands up and say, well, the time isn't right. I think we have to continue working on it. So when the time is right, there are suggestions for how do we move forward and we, it has to move in that direction. It's too dangerous um, for it not to. As, as you mentioned, we are starting to get the questions um, in the queue. I remind everybody to uh, please put your questions in the Q&A tab at the bottom of your Zoom screen, and we will get to uh, as many of those as we can. Um, Rachel, you mentioned that uh, we had a question about the doomsday clock, and Robert uh, Allshuler asks about the date and facts that uh, go into adjust the time. But give us just a snapshot of, of what it is. I know every January is it that uh, uh, you get your CNN moment uh, to uh, tell us how close we are, and, and uh, it's it's uh, a widely disseminated uh, uh, conversation. Uh, but what what is it? How, how did it start, and and uh, what is how is it instructive to us? Sure. Okay. So um, very quickly, um, the first doomsday clock was created by uh, an artist. Uh, Martil Langsdorf, who is the wife of Alexander Langsdorf and Manhattan Project um, scientist and a founder at the Bulletin. And they were, uh, it was 1947, so the Bulletin was created in 1945. We had a black and white um, uh, uh, bulletin that we put out, but the communication channels of the day were a magazine, right? Time Magazine, Life Magazine, that's how people were communicating. Um, uh, most effectively. And so the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists becomes a magazine and they need a first cover of their first magazine. So they go to March to Langsdorf to design the first cover. And the, it's a magnificent story of art and science coming together. She was an artist, but she understood the urgency that her um, husband and his colleagues were feeling and how dangerous the times were and how much they needed the American public to engage. And that was really the mission of the Bulletin and, and trying to generate interest and support and education around these issues. And so she creates a clock and it's set at seven minutes to midnight. And it's set in that quarter, yeah, the kind of last quarter of the clock that, that is kind of so famous right now at seven minutes to midnight, because as she says, that was pleasing to her eye, right? So it's a design, but the pleasing to her eye is also, it conveyed the, it conveyed the message she, that the scientists were trying to share. It was urgent. It was in our hands to pull it backwards, but we had to be engaged. And so it's 1947, right? By 1949, the Soviets explode their, uh, their atom for, and, and the editor of the bulletin moves the clock closer to midnight. And then in 1953, both the Soviets and the Americans had now tested the hydrogen bomb and he moves it the close uh, to two minutes to midnight. So this very static uh, design becomes dynamic in a way that was very unique um, before you had gifts and things like that uh, in, by the early 50s. And over the years, at first the editor and then the science and security board set the time on the clock. So how is the clock set now? Um, if you look, and it's all detailed on our website, but it's the science and security board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that sets the clock. And if you look, you'll see it. We have nuclear experts, we have scientists and security experts, um, and if uh, setting it, and um, and they're across the issues that we focus on. So, because so every year um, when we sit down to start our in-person discussions, we're talking throughout the year, but in November of every year we sit down for the in-person discussions. I ask the science and security board 
are we safer or at greater risk? This is humanity safer at greater risk this year compared to the last year. And this year compared to the last 75 plus years we've been asking the question. Those are big questions and they are answered uh, in different ways, right? But so um, until 2009, I believe it was, it was either seven or nine, um, you could answer that question by focusing on the nuclear threat. But by 2007, I believe it was, you couldn't answer that question anymore without including climate change. Right, so you couldn't answer is humanity safer or at greater risk. Climate was, and that's when we define climate as the ex, and a second existential threat. Although we had been publishing through the the late '60s and early '70s um, on climate change, so we were very early to the climate discussion because we care about existential issues and man-made threats to humanity. So I asked that question, and the setting of the clock reflects the answer of the Science and Security Board of are we safer or at greater risk? Is humanity safer or greater risk this year compared to last year and this year compared to the last 75 plus years? And why do we ask the question that way? Because we look at what's happened in the last year, but we also know after we have a history of setting it that we're trying to say something by how the clock is set and we use our past settings to calibrate what we're trying to say. So we indeed say by 90 seconds to midnight, which is where we're at now, it's the closest it's ever been. Um, and so when we, the science and security board means that. Um, now, what is it? This, the, the doomsday clock is a judgment. It's a judgment among those scientists and security experts and they, delineate their explanation every year in the clock statement that we release. And I always urge people to read that statement because it gives you a better picture of why they've moved the clock where they have. And the purpose is to convey our concerns, but also to provide a opportunity for people to question whether we've gotten it right or wrong. Right, and so to say, okay, do you agree that it should be 90 seconds, that we should have moved it forward or back that year? Why, when would you have said it? Would you have included those issues that we include? What else would you include and why? And the importance of that gets us right actually back to this movie, which is these are really hard issues to talk about, whether it's nuclear risk, climate change, new disruptive technologies, um, mis and disinformation, all of that. They're very hard to talk about. And many of them like nuclear issues and climate issues are almost designed to keep the public out. It, they're hard to talk about. And so what the clock does is provides an entry ramp into these discussions, if you will. It gives people an easy heuristic. It's 90 seconds to midnight, do you agree or not? And I think that's why it is used so widely throughout the year um, by people at the decision makers at the highest levels to um, school kids writing um, book reports, right? Because it very quickly can gives you a way to jump into a very complicated conversation. And that's what this movie is doing as well. It's giving us all an entrance ramp into a very complicated set of issues that affect our daily lives 
and feel like they shouldn't be that difficult for us. We might not understand the nuclear technology, but we do have a, a vested interest in how they're governed and how they're used. And so I think the that's what the, the clock, the clock is really this metaphor, but I see it as, as an accessible way to enter really difficult conversations. We can all participate in it, but it is a judgment. We are not feeding data into you know, a, a computer and it's spitting us back a number. What we're doing is we're taking, we're, use, we're using the assessment and judgment of experts who do that for a living in their, in their different parts of their expertise. And they come together and it's like, how does this roll up? How do we understand this moment we're in over the last year and over you know, nearly three quarters of a century? You know, in, in the past, uh, even just the past four or five months, uh, we've had some really re uh, revolutionary moments in the doomsday clock criteria. Uh, the, Moscow has said, uh, has, has started brandishing the nuclear weapons threat. Uh, you talked about the scientists, uh, the AI uh, technology people uh, having Oppenheimer moments. Uh, we see uh, climate change. Uh, causing dramatic and drastic uh, consequences, uh, the, the heat waves we're seeing and uh, firestorms and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it seems that uh, at some point the doomsday clock won't be able to keep up with the downward spiral of some of these events. So, uh, I'm sure you all will figure out the, uh, uh, the best way to, to display these things, but we're, we're inching closer and closer. I, I, I don't think anyone could say um, we're the same or better than we were a year ago. And a year from now, we'll probably be in the same predicament. So um, I don't, I don't want to be the pessimistic one here, but uh, uh, the doomsday clock analogy may run out of steam. Well, we hope not. <laughs> we, uh, every year, you know, we kind of uh, come out and talk about it. It's, uh, it's created to help provide a way that uh, we, we hope to move it away from midnight sure, sure. Um, and we do spend a lot of time also thinking about the magnitude of the change um you know compared to where we're at and, and like 90 seconds is very very dangerous and so we we really take it seriously when when we move it especially sure. you know given where we're at um so we really do think about it about in terms of like orders of magnitude and 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 what is the message we're trying to convey and what time would convey that now um, let's let's uh, uh, jump into a couple of these topics. Uh, nuclear weapons has been um, the bread and butter of uh, the doomsday clock for for so long, and, and continues to be an element. And uh, you know, we saw that uh, Moscow has backed away from the New Start agreement. We saw that uh, we see that they're threatening uh, nuclear weapon use uh, over the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, when you talk with your board, what did what do they say about uh, developments in the likelihood and uh, threat from a tactical nuclear exchange. We see uh, increased hostility between India and China and India and Pakistan. So all these are, are festering uh, opportunities for uh, disasters. Um, and what, what kind of anecdotal response do you get from the board uh, as you're talking about making changes to the doomsday clock, specifically relative to uh, the threat of, of nuclear exchange? Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of conversations about, um, 
you know, how fast um, things are changing. Um, there's growing concern about um, space as a future um, uh, battlefield, what that means in general for nuclear weapons, but also in general, you know, what is civilian and what's not and what's a target, what isn't, and, and real concerns about space as the, the kind of forefront of a new kind of battle area um, or battlefield. Um, so that's, that's one issue that, that we spend time talking about. And um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of interest in, um, in, uh, like mis and disinformation about, um, you know, what, what that means for our ability. We talk about mis and disinformation as like a compounding threat. You know, what does it mean for our ability as a society to tackle these big questions about science that are that are in front of us and and pr have such promise but such peril as well and our inability to like trust sources of information and how to make sense of that um and so those are some of the 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 window dressing around as we we think and talk about you know the environment in in which we are i would imagine this year um, just from what I've been seeing, we'll be talking a lot about artificial intelligence and, you know, what does it mean in terms of itself as an existential threat? And I think there's some questions about whether it is, but what does it mean in terms of weaponry and the future battlefields? Um, and they'll be talking about that and, and where are governance structures and differences between nuclear weapons, which are largely state owned, right? And artificial intelligence, which is really the province of the private sector. And what would that mean? So those are some, you know, questions that I can imagine they'll be talking about, you know, in the coming months um, as we go into thinking about these issues. Uh, Rachel, we have another question from uh, Robert Alshul. He, he asked about the uh, organization's mission, uh, the bulletin's mission uh, evolving over time and what strategies you consider most effective in engaging the, the public? Oh, that's a great question. And we're, we kind of are looking at that every day. So in some ways, the, well, let me just start with, on the 10th anniversary, our editor, Eugene Rabinowitz, was asked, what were the goals of the bulletin, of forming the bulletin of the atomic scientists? And I, I like to repeat those because they really drive us today. The first was um, to educate the public about um, nuclear uh, technologies. And um, that notion of, we, we would say today, engaging the public, we were founded on this belief that the public is important to democratic discourse and manage and pressuring our, our political leaders um, to, do, uh, to do the right thing. And that, that continues to be our mission to engage the public um, on these issues. And he talks about that to engage the public, educate them on uh, nuclear technologies. I think he used the term nuclear power uh, specifically, but in it, what he meant was that these advancements are dual use, right? And we need to be educated to kind of understand where there's good and harm and how to, and really debate how to govern them. And that still holds true today for nuclear technologies and other technologies. The second reason was to provide a place where scientists could come out of their labs and engage the policymakers, right? We still have this debate whether experts should be relegated to their universities and their labs or 
and, and just work on getting tenure or whether we should support their engagement for those who want to on public policy issues, when and where and how. And so we were created as a space for those who wanted to engage on the policies of their innovations to engage. And that remains something we're doing. But it's the third goal, and this goes to your question, and I think that the questioner, which was um, to manage the dangerous presence of Pandora's box of modern science. And it's a beautiful mouthful, but it's a beautiful quote, right? To manage the dangerous presence that we needed to govern the dangerous presence, dual use technology of Pandora's box of modern science, what science was moving quickly at such large scales. And we it was, and so what you see is that the bulletin is largely focused on nuclear weapons for all of its uh, history, but never exclusively. And increasingly, as science is innovating and growing and expanding, it, it, the topics we cover do so as well. And so that's why the issue of climate change often comes up. And what I said before is, I'm not surprised now, knowing our history, that in 1978, we had a cover story that said, is, is mankind changing the, the environment or changing the climate? And you open it and basically as we say yes. Right, they were grappling with these innovations in climate and climate sciences. They're grappling with not just physics, but they move into um, biology and questions of population and all these big heady issues that they see in terms of science. And that's why we were so active around COVID. We were we have longstanding connections to bioweapons experts and patholog and and um, pathogen researchers because of. Uh, BWC, but but we very quickly were able to say that we don't think COVID is a weapon, we don't think it's a bioweapon, a bio but we do think that it could have come out of a lab, and we have, you know, kind of our scientists who are looking at that. So we've always looked at these big consequential issues of the advancement of science, but the biggest one, then the poster child that remains and will always be, you know, key at the bulletin are, are nuclear weapons, because those are have the, the greatest consequences and, and are the most difficult in many ways to govern. We're coming down to the last couple of minutes here. So if you have uh, questions, please get them in the Q&A uh, tab. Uh, Victor Hugo Nogueira asks uh, Rachel uh, to comment on the crossover between AI and nuclear decision-making. Uh, uh, what are the uh, consequences of using AI in the, in the process of uh, a, a nuclear power uh, deciding when and where and how to uh, employ nuclear weapons, especially if they feel that uh, they're, they're at peril. Yeah, so there's a lot of conversation about that among nuclear planners, as you can imagine. And, and the, the, the kind of reigning view is that humans should always be making any decisions in terms of any sort of use. And we wouldn't want to turn that over to artificial intelligence. But let me kind of step back and share with you uh, a, a conversation that I was having with uh, a member of our board of sponsors, which is yet another layer of, of uh, kind of leading um, uh, scientists that support the bulletin's work. But as, as a, a leader in AI, this particular um, board member was saying what worries him so much is that AI just speeds up all decision-making. Even if you leave it to humans to make final decisions, 
AI is processing the information. It's built to process the information so quickly that it's narrowing the time frame available to make decisions. And what we know about diplomacy is that the, the whole point of diplomacy is to broaden the time you have to make the decision, widen the amount of time that you have for, for leaders to be able to think about what they need to have happen and ask the right people. And so even if you, if you are able to institute individuals in these positions, you know, and, and the, the AI is still operating around us, right? And, and the information that we're getting is coming so quickly and faster and faster. And I think if you think about the strategies of deterrence or, or whatever strategies we're working, they need time and we need time to be able to see if how the other side is reacting and everything. So like every other part of, um, of our life, right, the, the, the need to create space for um, engagement and thought is, is under pressure. And this is not an area that we want it under pressure because as it is, it's already a very tight time, amount of time that, that you can um, make decisions. So I think that that to me is the, the most interesting, well, there's a lot of interesting questions, but is a truly interesting one of like, how do you continue to expand create space for decision makers to think through a problem where information is just coming at them so quickly. Uh, Rachel, Robert, Robert uh, Kapanji asks if there's been a more destructive atomic weapon developed uh, since the first hydrogen bomb. Uh, I know that they've increased the, the, uh, the power of, of hydrogen bombs. What, what, uh, what's your answer to that question? Yeah, so we definitely saw over time just larger and larger tests of, of nuclear weapons at the scale of which were, were just, you know, multiples of what we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think one of the areas now is actually the opposite of where we're so focused in terms of, of nuclear strategy, doctrine, policy, is this return to quote-unquote low-yield nuclear weapons. So what was happening during a lot of the Cold War was could you make a bigger and bigger bomb? Could you have a, a, a greater and greater yield? And we saw that demonstrating. But where the investments are now being made are in quote unquote tactical nuclear weapons or, or smaller yield nuclear weapons. And the idea was, was they were that the, the weapons were becoming so destructive that it was becoming um, inconceivable that you would ever use one, right? And so then the different, the, the, the led largely by the Russians in this way, but matched by the US, an effort to, to now make them smaller and smaller. And many of these small tactical nukes are still bigger than um, um, what we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But what we hear out of the, Ru on the Russian side now, like literally a few weeks ago, is leading Russians saying, we're gonna have to, we have to use one of these weapons so that the West knows we're serious and we can use one of those and that will convey our um, uh, seriousness about Ukraine and where our red lines are. And so these, these weapons in some ways are becoming, um, it seems if you look out more usable and now the United States, the Biden administration, but also the West are trying to find ways to, how would they respond? And we saw like right after the original um, invasion, we saw, okay, even if they used one, 
there are other things that the U.S. and West or could do to make it to make it very painful for the Russians without responding with tactical nuclear weapons. But this is really untested. And what if they use a second one? What if they use a third one? Then what if the U.S. responds? And then you get back into that good old term of an escalation ladder that no one knows where that ends. And when you war game these out, just about every war game ends with both sides then using low yield weapons, increasing their yield and getting back to the catastrophic um, global consequences that we know are possible. So the question is a good one, but in terms of things to, to watch for sure, it's actually the, the minimization of them, quote unquote, that is, is, seems so unstable right now. When a weapon becomes more usable, it's more likely to be used. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground with uh, Dr. Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And uh, Rachel, I'm gonna ask you for a, a closing comment here, but I just wanted to thank everyone for their questions and participation today. Uh, you'll be able to find uh, this program in our youtube.com slash TNWAC archive. The podcast and a transcript will be on our website. Uh, Rachel, uh, a, a lot to digest here. Uh, I suppose people can go to your the bulletin.org website and get more information about the doomsday clock and about uh, 90 seconds to midnight. Uh, you have a rich uh, collection of videos in YouTube and uh, uh, op-eds and you're, you're, uh, you're out there. So people can find out more about uh, the topic, but uh, the floor is yours for any closing comments that you'd like to make. Well, thank you, Pat. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to the audience. Yeah, I think, first of all, do go to our website. There's a ton of good material on Oppenheimer and the movie and how to understand it. Good work being done on many of the issues we talked about. The one thing that maybe I could leave our listeners with, and one thing that the film didn't touch on is the uh, consequences on impacted communities. And we have a great video out right now with an interview with Tina Cordova, who talks about the effects and impacts on uh, what are called downwinders, those who are, who are downwind of the Trinity test. There's also a, a really important New York Times piece out um, that focuses on a study at Princeton, which shows the consequences of the Trinity test that it touched 47 states and blew so much further than scientists at the time believed. Um, there are communities across the world who continue to suffer the effects of the testing and the, the, the um, incredible number that we tested in the Nevada desert, right, in our own country, and the consequences of that. And so I, that wasn't very visible in the, um, the movie, nor very little on the Japanese. And so I think we also, it's really important just to remember that there are impacted communities and they're living with the consequences of these tests today. They are heroes in the story in many ways and they weren't asked to be. And right now compensation efforts are going through our own Congress to widen the scope of compensation for, to include those who are at Trinity and it's called RICA and it's going through now um, about its compensation act. And I'd urge folks to look at it because if we can encourage our political leaders to widen the scope of who gets um, compensated for it, it will serve uh, uh, justice quite frankly. So um, maybe that's the last that uh, we can leave it there. Well, uh, thanks for that. And I uh, apologize for not getting that uh, topic in earlier. There's certainly a lot to discuss there. 
Uh, it's been in the news lately, especially with the observance of the, uh, the dropping of the bomb in Japan uh, in, in August of 1945. Uh, but the, uh, the consequences for those in and around the Trinity site and the other nuclear testing sites uh, has been profound. And when, when, it's, uh, when you put a human face on the incidences of, uh, of cancers and, and other consequences, it's really a, a story that uh, more people need to know about. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. And we'll, uh, we'll include some references to that in the, uh, the transcript and, and the website posting. Uh, Dr. Rachel Bronson, thank you so much for being with us today. We really enjoyed this conversation of a very important topic, uh, probably no, nothing more important that uh, we could be uh, considering. And as you, as you pointed out, uh, what we seek at the World Affairs Council, uh, as you do there, is an informed citizenry who uh, is impacted by developments in the world and uh, steps up to, uh, to talk about them with their elected leaders and in their community. But that's it for me, Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Please visit our website, tnwac.org, where you can become a member uh, and you can also make a gift to the World Affairs Council to help our programs in global affairs awareness in the community and in schools. Uh, Dr. Bronson, thanks so much. Have a great day up there in Chicago. Thank you so much.